ever laugh as the hearse goes by. For you may be the next to die. They wrap you up in a big white sheet. From your head down to your feet, they put you in a big black box and cover you up with dirt and rocks. And all goes well for about a week, and then your coffin begins to leak, and the worms crawl in, the worms crawl out, the worms play pinochle on your snout. They eat your eyes, they eat your nose, they eat the jelly between your toes. Hello there, and welcome to When We Were Young. <laughs> <laughs> the podcast that hopes to give you quite a fright as we critique everything your childhood holds dear. <laughs> I'm Becky, the podcast host most likely to finally nab a husband and then accidentally trap myself in a box for all eternity. <laughs> We've all been there. I'm Seth, the host most likely to laugh as the hearse goes by. And I'm Chris, the podcast host most likely to... That is the loudest I've ever heard you scream. That is officially the loudest Chris has ever been on this entire podcast. We're at episode 70. I want everyone to mark this moment. I try and top myself every time. (laughs) We hope you're listening to this podcast under covers with a flashlight. I don't know why you do that. (laughs) It's the summer, so there's no spookier season to be telling ghost stories. Am I right, guys? Are you? (laughs) I'm I'm not under a sheet because it would be too hot to be under a sheet. (laughs) (laughs) It's very true. Turn your AC on. Today we'll be discussing the children's book series, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, featuring folklore stories retold by Alvin Schwartz and with very memorable illustrations by Stephen Gamble. The book series was released in the early 80s and has remained popular of children today and remains beloved by adults who loved the books when they were young. Hey, that's the name of the podcast. And yet it took still over three decades to finally make a big screen adaptation with Guillermo del Toro producing um, the movie called Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark being released in theaters this month. Before we get started on these spooky stories, I want to know what scared you the most as a kid. I will go first. I, as a kid, as I've said many times on this podcast, adored watching scary movies, watching scary shows, reading scary books, anything of the sort. Anything spooky, I was there. I also very deeply at my core wanted to believe that ghosts and aliens and all those kinds of supernatural things actually existed. Is it because then, like, Santa would be real by deep, like... It, it was It was not a backseas <laughs> runaround to get more gifts for myself at Christmas. No. Okay. I was well aware that Santa was my parents. Spoiler for... Uh, <laughs> the children oh, no. listening to this podcast yeah. about oh, no. things... Several years, decades before they were born. We're going to have to cut this out. We're going to have to cut all this out. Very clearly and vividly, the moment you asked this question, I knew exactly what my answer was, which is that I loved and would always religiously watch the show Unsolved Mysteries, hosted by Robert Stack, with an iconic legendary theme song that I will definitely cut into this episode right now. Thank you. 
I would watch every episode of this show, and with Unsolved Mysteries, you would never know each week if it was going to be like, oh, this is a true crime that's gone unsolved for decades, this is a serial killer story, or like, this is the story of how the government hid the existence of aliens for decades and decades. There was an episode of Unsolved Mysteries I will never, ever, ever forget that was about alien abductions and featured a, as every episode would, a kind of dramatization of fictionalized dramatization of whichever person was kind of telling their story was telling. In the dramatization during this alien abduction episode, there was a scene that depicted the military taking an alien body out of Area 51. I think it was kind of centered around Roswell and like the Roswell crash and an alien being taken out of like a military base and taken away. I was at home watching this and I can't to this day explain why, but I had such a feeling of like deep mortal terror at seeing this fictionalized alien that I had my mom drive me to my grandmother's house because I like refused to sleep at my house that night. Wow. But you liked aliens or you liked the idea that there would be aliens, but you also also were scared of it? Both of those things and both with equal and unimaginable intensity. (laughs) It was like both of those things at the very same time. And even to this day, I don't know what it was that both like thrilled me and scared me so much about it. This would have been when I was like eight or nine years old at the oldest. So there were some things I, you know, you understand about living in the world at eight or nine. I think I probably knew at the time, at least that no one around me actually thought that aliens were a real thing. Or at least if they were a real thing, not something that I, as an eight or nine year old, would be likely to encounter in my daily life. (laughs) But there was just something that was so frightening and inherently threatening about that idea that it it just scared the mortal shit out of me. And of course, you know, like being eight or nine years old, like I think that was also probably the age when you have kind of the most intense nightmares of your life when your subconscious is like just kind of forming and you're kind of figuring out that like in your dream life, there are things that happen that aren't real and that don't exist in the real world. But when you wake up, you're like, wow, I felt that so intensely. That's as intense as any real thing I've ever experienced. That was kind of a particular and unique age to be scared by something like that. But to this day, I don't know if I've been more scared of anything. Yeah, I actually think I remember that episode. Um, I didn't watch Unsolved Mysteries because of that reason. It would it would scare the shit out of me. And that was not something I enjoyed. It's still not something I really enjoy. But I do think that maybe I happened across that episode and that might be the very reason why I decided that that show was not for me. Becky, remind me what your question was again. <laughs> what scared you the most as a kid? Ah, everything. <laughs> Yes, I was not very discerning about what would frighten me. I was pretty easily frightened. I think I've shared some of those things on the podcast because we've gone over various childhood traumas of <laughs> of certain things. Michael Jackson's thriller video was a big one. E.T. Right. E. was a big one. Yeah, E.T. was gross. <laughs> Love the movie now. E.T. was gross. Yeah, you know, I, I told stories about being afraid of, like, seeing Batman in the theaters. So I was easily frightened by, like, pop culture things, and I wasn't exposed to a whole lot of, like, horror kind of things as a kid. It's kind of a chicken or the egg thing. Like, was I afraid because I didn't see very much of that, or did I not see very much of that 
and then become afraid. I don't, I'm mm-hmm. not really sure. But the main thing that comes to me, if, if we're really talking about the thing that probably disturbed me the very most that I don't think I have shared on this podcast is the size of the universe. <laughs> like just thinking about thinking yes. about it? Yes, because at some point in school or in my reading of science books, I was informed that the universe <laughs> goes on forever. <laughs> And How Vincent Price is very amused by this. <laughs> How old were you? Like, roughly? I want to say, like, seven to nine. So this is probably oh the first God. time you're talking about, like, existentialism. Yeah. yeah. So I heard that the universe goes on forever. And just, like, I could not contain that thought in my mind. Obviously, that doesn't make any sense. And so I decided <laughs> in my mind that it does not go on forever. <laughs> <laughs> that there has to be an end to it. That, you know, it may not have been discovered yet, but that at some point, yes. Like, the universe just ends. Is it like the wall in the Truman Show that he just, like, bangs? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> sure. I didn't have a concrete, like, explanation for how it ended, but I was like, I am certain that the universe ends somewhere because nothing can go on forever. And so my dad and I, I remember at bedtime sometime, had a conversation about this. And I was like, well, I I think it ends. And my dad said, well, if it does end, what's on the other side? That's what I was about to ask you. <laughs> night, <Yeah>. night. <laughs> Sweet dreams. <laughs> and then I was like, well, there can't be nothing. That nothing would still be like something. Uh-huh. And then I was disturbed afresh <laughs> because be they're both yeah. cannot be forever and there can't be not forever because there has to be something else so mind blown still don't like thinking about it <laughs> still mad at my dad for telling me that when i was like eight years old why are you mad at him i mean it got you thinking about the world L- look and life. becky if we start talking about why our dads make us angry <laughs> it's going to be a much longer episode than any of us are prepared for that was a very my dad thing to do by the way. <laughs> just be like yeah gonna lay that on you and good night Good night. Sleep tight. I don't think I have loved an answer that any of us has given as much as I love that answer. Just tiny Chris with his mind exploded and imploded at the same time. Literally picturing you in bed with your eyes wide open just staring at the ceiling. (laughs) And I love that it's an existential concept that terrified you so. (laughs) Because it's a very real thing. I mean, kids and like I said, I had fears of like my Michael Jackson dresses a zombie. Like, that was scary, too. But this was the thing that I don't think maybe a lot of kids really think about. But this was the thing that really, like, stuck. And I couldn't just be like, oh, that's not real. Like... (laughs) Or, like, I get it now. I'm like, that still disturbs me. I still don't get it. Like, it still doesn't make any sense. And it it was just this moment that I realized, like, oh, like, as a human, like, there are things that we can't even really grasp, like, that will never make sense to us. Like, there's no easy answer for that. There's no scientific explanation. It's just like, okay, like, you just have to kind of accept that you don't really get that. And I still don't like that. (laughs) (laughs) And that is scarier than anything you'll find in these three tales. Um, Chris, what was my question? (laughs) I believe your question was, what scared you as a child? Nothing. (laughs) (laughs) I'm the one that came up with this question, and yet when I was thinking about it for myself, I was like, not much. <laughs> Not really. Like, I couldn't think of anything specific. 
because I watched a lot of horror movies and I always liked macabre things, but they didn't scare me. And the the answer that is probably accurate is I was shy, so I was probably scared of other people. Yeah, that's not a great answer, but I think it's probably the true one. Well, they do say hell is other people. Yeah. So I guess you were scared of hell. Yeah, I think that's it. I uh... Again, that is also literally existentialist, because Chris, that quote is, Sartre, like, the, uh, Becky, that's amazing to me. And, like, I, I do feel like, to some extent, you having seen so many horror movies so early on probably didn't dull you to it, but, again, it, like, expands your visual vocabulary. So, like, you know what those images are, you know what those, you know that those stories are fake and made up. Yeah, I remember being grossed out by some stuff like killer clowns from outer space which is literally on seth's coffee table for some reason right now. <laughs> we need to talk about why that is but um i remember watching that and feeling grossed out but not scared mm-hmm. um although i did have a recurring nightmare where a clown dressed as an old-timey detective was chasing me at a pool party <sighs> We have to go into this really deeply on another episode. <laughs> it was recurring, too. I don't know. And I would dream about falling off off things a lot. So Let's go back to the clown detective. <laughs> yeah, back to the clown detective. No, uh, no clue where that... I still don't know. Are you seeing this as, like, a Netflix series? Or... <laughs> Amazon. Okay, okay. Amazon. We've got a pitch tomorrow for you. Yeah. I don't know. I can't explain it. I was mostly just scared of, of other people. I would, didn't want to talk to them. I didn't, I sometimes locked myself in my closet if other people came over. Not like my friends, but like adults. Are you scared of things now? I'm scared of things that are depressing. Like what if something happens to my baby? Or what if I'm driving to the dog park with my baby and my dog and then we all get in a wreck? <laughs> or, okay. Yeah, I those things are what scares me if i think too much about them like those aren't fun to to tell you about they're just like sad yeah (laughs) well the reason i asked was just like i was wondering how much our childhood fear or in some cases lack of fear carried over because i feel like i am still bothered by weird existential questions (laughs) i mean I'm, i'm permanently bothered by those concerns as well Also, in retrospect, and not to get too super serious, I've realized, like, as an adult, that I've had depression and anxiety most of my life. And in retrospect, when I really think about it, like, I think that when I had that obviously very hyperbolic and very over-the-top anxiety reaction to that episode of Unsolved Mysteries, I think that was a panic attack. Like, Mm. I think there have been other things in my childhood where I look back now and when I think about them and when I think about how intensely I felt at the time, I realized, oh, that was a panic attack because I've also had panic attacks as an adult. And I know the context of what that physically feels like to go through. I think I had a lot of panic attacks as a kid, and I think that's one of them. Thankfully, as an adult, I don't have that same fear of aliens. <laughs> I don't have that fear of alien abduction. I'm relatively certain that there are intelligent species in the universe, and I think they know well enough to avoid humans at all costs. <laughs> It's funny because for so much of my life, I definitely knew that that was the thing that I had been the most scared by, Um, but I definitely didn't have any kind of context for why I felt it that intensely until I was a grown-up. 
Yeah, I mean, let, let's get let's get serious. Uh, <laughs> no, I've had anxiety too, and I've had it at times like worse than I have it right now. But it does remind me of that childhood feeling that I would have, like when I would go into something that I thought might be scary, or was watching something that it was something that I couldn't handle. Like that, I always was afraid that something was going to be so frightening or so terrifying that I just wouldn't be able to handle it, and I wouldn't know what to do. And that reminds me of some of the like adult fears that I've had. Is like, you know, what if I am in a shooter situation or something like that I would just kind of like freeze and not know what to do and and yeah it, it's weird that that <laughs> carries on from childhood that same kind of feeling of just being I guess out of control and, and kind of like losing the ability to function in the moment let's talk about children's books <laughs> So there are a lot of horror children's book series like Fear Street and Goosebumps by R.L. Stein. That's episode 50 that we did Goosebumps, so go back and check that out. Some Neil Gaiman books like Coraline. There's probably more. I didn't research that much more. But, <laughs> but unlike those books, the scary story books actually seem to genuinely frighten young readers. A man named Joseph Blackwell came to Philadelphia on a business trip. He stayed with friends in the big house they owned outside the city. That night, they had a good time visiting, but when Blackwell went to bed, he tossed and turned and couldn't sleep. Sometime during the night, he heard a car turn into the driveway. He went to the window to see who was arriving at such a late hour. In the moonlight, he saw a long black hearse filled with people. The driver of the hearse looked up at him. When Blackwell saw his queer, hideous face. He shuddered. The driver called to him, There is room for one more. Then he waited a minute or two, and then he drove off. Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark was released October 14th, 1981 by HarperCollins. Two sequels followed. More Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark released Halloween in 1984. And Scary Stories 3, More Tales to Chill Your Bones released September 1st, 1991. Collectively, the books have sold over 7 million copies. They were written by Alvin Schwartz, an author who has written over two dozen books, though his Scary Stories books remain his most well-known. Most of his books centered around American folklore. That might be because he has a background in journalism. He began his career as a journalist writing for the Binghamton Press. He died in 1992. Stephen Gamel is an artist who has illustrated dozens and dozens of children's books. He works mainly with watercolors and black ink. His work is very distinct. I'm sure if you were to see one of the illustrations in this book, if you were around our age, you would know exactly what book that's from. So did you guys read the Scary Stories books when you were young? And if so, which story was the most memorable to you? Yes, and many of them. <laughs> I took note as I went through these books of all the ones that were the most memorable to me. And I mean, we'll touch on them throughout the episode. In elementary school, I happened upon these books in our school library. I can't remember exactly what age it would have been. I think it's probably around the same time I was watching Unsolved Mysteries, like 8, 9, 10, maybe? But I feel like even at 10 years old, I'd probably gotten to more advanced books by that point. Becky, as you mentioned, I was really instantly drawn in by the artwork. I knew that I loved, like, spooky movies and ghost stories. There was a time when I would just kind of look for anything in our school library that was about ghost stories and especially about like folk tales of ghost stories. 
Um, obviously, being from right outside of New Orleans, there are a whole lot of local ghost stories and local folklore and characters and that kind of thing that like go along with New Orleans culture. Um, But I was just really taken in, even at the time, reading the books in this series and kind of understanding how they had been passed down uh, from other generations and a lot of different cultures And I feel like I aged out of them pretty quickly. I read through all three of the Scary Stories books in preparation for the podcast. And to be honest, I didn't really remember all that much from two or three. I mean, kind of in retrospect, I think I really only connected with that first book. I really connected with a lot of that first book and a lot of those stories. Also, those were, I think, some of the first Scary Stories I read that were kind of like intentionally comical. And, like, the idea of, like, a, f- a funny ghost story um, wasn't, isn't really something that's in pop culture all that much. Um, so, I feel like that was kind of a thing that I got out of reading this book that I wasn't necessarily getting anywhere else at the time. But, yeah, like I said, like, I, I do think I kind of aged out of these pretty quickly. And they're definitely not books that I've, like, revisited since then. I don't have very much history with these books at all. I do remember them from uh, my childhood, from other people reading them. Like, I feel like they got passed around a lot. I don't know if people checked them out from the library or maybe they were just in the classroom for some reason, but I feel like people were kind of sharing them with each other and would read them to each other. But I had a pretty distinct sense that it just wasn't for me. Like I said, I was fairly easily frightened or just, I was not into being frightened. Like it wasn't an experience that I was like seeking out at the time and I still don't. (laughs) Yeah, it's just never been something that I enjoyed. I do enjoy some like horror and suspense kind of things, which I'll get into more later when we discuss like the kinds of horror I do and don't like. But the actual experience of being frightened, which it seems like these were like right there in the title, is it seems like the point of this was to be scared. You were going to read something and it was going to scare you, freak you out, disturb you, be gross, like something like that. And none of that appealed to me. So I just didn't read these and didn't really feel like I was missing out on anything. Like, it, I kind of just felt like I was above it in a way. Like, I, they were short stories and I've never been someone who likes short stories that much. Like, I was reading books. Like, I was a pretty advanced reading level when I was young. So I was already reading things that were like pretty well above like what people my age were reading. So like I remember people reading this in third grade. Like that's about when I read the Jurassic Park novel, you know, which is an adult novel. So I just, I think like by the time that my peers were reading this, I was kind of already reading things that were like a little more serious and just like more in depth. I read the fuck out of these. (laughs) But so did all my classmates. They were always being checked out of the library. Like you said, Chris, they were always being passed around. It felt like you were breaking the rules looking at the books. Like Mm. you were like overstepping some boundary or getting away with something. So I don't remember being scared by them, but I remember feeling like an adult being able to like read something like this. Bad kid. Like a bad kid. Um, I used to throw (laughs) Halloween parties at my house all the time and I 100% did the Dead Man's Brains game right out of this book. I think I remember like having the book and being like the brains have to be spaghetti and the eyes have to be peeled grapes and chicken bones as fingers like we did the whole thing did you have a liver 
Did you get a liver? I don't think we got a liver. Okay. <laughs> but I 100% did that where you like, your guests are in the dark feeling stuff in bowls. So that one like stood out the most to me when I turned the page and I was like, oh my God, I remember doing this game in real well, life. And see, I love that because like I read the book alone and like did not use it to party plan. <laughs> <laughs> and in retrospect, I really wish I had, because so many of these stories are, like, social. I'm just so not surprised that you <laughs> I'm, I'm not either. <laughs> these books have some controversy. The series is listed by the American Library Association as being the most challenged series of books from the 1990s. Most challenged, not just children's. And it's the seventh most challenged from the 2000s. Still, what does challenged mean? That it was banned or, or parents or whoever wanted to ban it. Okay. It made the list again in 2012, so... So it doesn't matter how close to present day we're getting. Like people seem to still think that this is inappropriate for children. Thanks, Obama. Yeah, I remember <laughs> looking into that when we did the Goosebumps episode because those were a challenge, but not nearly as much as these books. And yeah, it's like these books, and then it's I think the color purple is on there too because that has like sexual content. So it's like a weird mix of like yeah. these books, which are for children, and then like adult books that are just like serious but have relevance. It, it's just <laughs> weird head, that like it's yeah. like this and the color purple. Or, <laughs> like, together on the same list. So complaints uh, were typically centered around on its violence, disturbing subject matter, uh, potential unsuitability for younger readers. There are some religious concerns. A quote from a former elementary school teacher and mother, <clears throat> like that matters. There's no moral to the stories. The bad guys always win, and they make light of death. There's a story called Just Delicious about a woman who goes to a mortuary, steals another woman's liver, and feeds it to her husband. That's sick. <laughs> That's a good pull quote for the cover. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you're not going to read this to a three-year-old. <laughs> like, these are for, like, 11, like 10, 11, 12-year-olds. Right, like, say, like, let the, your three-year-old watch Child's Play. <laughs> Hellraiser. Save these books for later. <laughs> Sorry, Becky's mom. Where do I go from there? <laughs> That's both so predictable and also so self-evidently comical. Yeah. Because, I mean, not to, like, spoil what we think of it now, but these are relatively so tame. These are relatively innocent versions of horror stories. Yeah. They're so much tamer than any of the horror movies that were out at the time. Why don't we get into how we <laughs> felt about it as adults? What do you guys think reading these present day? I was very disappointed uh, <laughs> reading these books because, like I said, I had no experience with them. I mean, I wasn't expecting, like, masterful literature because I knew that they were primarily for kids, but they had such a reputation that I thought there must be something there. And so what I was expecting was that these would be fun reads that were scary retellings of urban legends and folklore that would be engrossing, I guess. Just that they would have a spooky atmosphere to them that you would just kind of get lost in. In this like spooky little world for a little while and because i had literally i don't think ever really even opened one of these books i was just really surprised at how short they were <laughs> not only just in actual length but just in the story that is told is very like doesn't really have like a beginning middle and an end it's kind of a maybe a middle and an end i don't know like mm -hmm. they're not stories that like really like set a particular world for you and and all of that it, it's kind of like a joke and then a punchline like it felt like mm -hmm. like every story was mainly just there to be kind of a punchline and so i was disappointed that, that they didn't have more atmosphere to them i was expecting the writing to be a little bit more involved a little bit more setting the scene and just the writing is very kind of straightforward and it's like this happens this happens and 
and then boo. Yeah, I find myself in complete agreement with that, and I read them. <laughs> but I think in retrospect, especially, it became clear why I didn't stick with the rest of the series. Um, because Chris, exactly as you just said, like there's not much storytelling, there's not much there there. None of them take the time to establish the characters. None of the horror is based around the characters themselves. It's kind of just whatever supernatural spooky thing it turns out has already happened. So many of the stories are based around a reveal of something that happened long before where the writer is choosing to start the story to the point where it's kind of constantly disorienting and seems almost like a like a greatest hits compilation, which kind of in retrospect, looking at it as a collection of kind of repackaged folk tales kind of makes some sense. But still, if as a writer, as an author, you're going into this with the hope of kind of collecting these stories and presenting them for a new generation, I would think that the way that you would make that the most successful is really trying to like put meat on the skeleton there. <laughs> Again, like, craft a story that's engrossing, that pulls you in. Now, that said, like, some of the stories in this definitely, like, remain very memorable to me. This was definitely the first time, just to name one, that, like, I ever heard the urban legend about, like, the hook. Uh, like, the hook hand, um, and that kind of thing. And, you know, in just a couple years after this, I would have seen I Know What You Did Last Summer <laughs> and saw that urban legend played out in a much different way with much more Jennifer Love Hewitt involved. Um, and much more Sarah Michelle Gellar, it must be so said. So much more. Yeah, it was kind of disappointing. Like I And rereading all these books, it was also more apparent to me that I feel like the artwork is more engrossing, is more interesting, is more kind of intriguing uh, than the storytelling is. And I kind of feel sad that it wasn't a set of stories or like one continuous story kind of framed around that artwork, or that there wasn't more kind of integration between the artwork on so many of the pages of these books and the stories that they were telling. Yeah, you call this the, um, like a greatest hit CD. And it, to me, it seemed like the iTunes preview of a Greatest Hit CD, <laughs> where you're only getting to hear, like, one minute and 30 mm -hmm. seconds of each track. Yeah. Guys, we all agree. How <laughs> <It's amazing. laughs> scary. Terrifying. Ooh, I did not remember that these were, like, urban legends and, like, folklore. I thought that was interesting. It was almost like a history book. Like, he did a lot of research and he wanted to preserve these urban legends that have been told, you know, over, you know, countless countries of, throughout history. And I thought that was interesting. But I didn't think that they were well written and that the stories themselves, like, generally fell flat. They weren't told in an interesting way. They can be for children and use children's vocabulary, you know, or whatever that level is. But they weren't really well written. Like, I think it's apparent that he was a journalist because he's just saying this happened and this happened and this happened. Like, there's no, like, descriptive <laughs> language. Woman, that 34, <laughs> sees ghosts. But it's barely even that. They, you don't get ages for this. Like, a lot of it honestly reminded me of what it's like when five-year-olds tell stories. Yeah, <laughs> and then yeah. there was this man, and it turned out that he was dead. And then the dead man went to the bus stop. 
So like with very few exceptions, I didn't get anything out of the stories, but the illustrations I think are masterpieces. And I would love to have like a coffee table book of just Me too. the illustrations. And I give the drawings an A plus and I give everything else like a D minus. <laughs> <laughs> Again, kind of reading all three of these and especially like really, really still loving the drawings and illustrations in these books. It also kind of made me realize why I very soon after this, like really got into Tim Burton and really got into like Edward Scissorhands, Nightmare Before Christmas, all of those. The illustrations are so evocative in the way that none of the stories are. No. Okay. So a few years ago for the 30th anniversary of the release of these books, HarperCollins released the books again with new illustrations by an artist named Brett Helquist. Fans were very, very upset, to put it mildly, because these updated illustrations had none of the horror none of the inventiveness, none of the originality of the Gamel drawings. Literally, they look like drawings from a children's book. Why didn't they re-release the drawings with new stories? <laughs> right? <laughs> yes, exactly. And people were so mad because God. the drawings are so amazing that, you know, they listen to criticism and they re-release the books with the original drawings. But I think that really shows that no one gives a shit about the stories <laughs> for the most part. It's all about the drawings. Like, this book, I think, is so memorable and has been memorable throughout its entire history because the drawings are so vivid. And I really don't think without them, we'd be talking about it right now. Yeah, as someone who's not as attached to the original drawings, because I maybe at best, like, saw a few of them. Um, I don't find the difference as egregious as you. Like, I, I do think the original drawings are definitely You're spookier, insane. You're insane. But I, I <laughs> You're don't know. You're a crazy person. I don't find the original drawings enough of a reason to care about these books. Uh, I can't agree. I do. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think they're spectacular, the drawings. I, I would really like a coffee table book of just these like nice quality drawings of these like this could be this could be held in like an art gallery i think they're great they're wonderful they're so much better than what they're attached to yeah honestly like now (laughs) i kind of want versions that are just the illustrations (laughs) like no stories whatsoever Yeah, so there's many drawings that affected me, but the one that really affected me was in the story, The Haunted House. I mean, I don't even remember the story. It's like a bunch of kids go in a haunted house and they meet a ghost woman and they don't really describe what she looks like until you turn the page and on the left side of the page is this giant close-up of this woman and what she looked like and it's two giant holes for eyes and straggly hair and like that was the one thing that gave me like a chill because the way that the book is laid out where you like turn the page and it's you're just confronted with this horrible drawing like horrible in like a in a wonderful way yeah. Yeah, um, yeah and and it really affected me how shocking that was and i thought that was great like as somebody in their 30s like could be shocked by something just how it was laid out the format of the book which was obviously deliberate Yeah, I agree. I do feel like the closest thing to a strength it has is where the illustrations help kind of frame the stories. Again, though, Chris, I may not have been as 
personally offended on a moral level, as Becky was, about the changeover in the illustrations, but I still find the artistic style in this really unique, especially as far as illustrations of a children's book. These creatures are indistinct in a lot of cases, and they're bloody, and they're asymmetrical. I think there's a way in which a lot of children's book illustrations are always very bloodless and symmetrical and perfect. It makes a lot of sense on paper that Guillermo del Toro would be producing the adaptation of this. This is very kind of visually in line with his style and his approach to horror in, again, I think in a way that works so much better than the actual stories on these pages. Well, I'm not defending the new drawings, but maybe I feel like they go better with these stories because they're kind of basic uh like these new the the original drawings are very striking but in a way that like for me like just kind of seemed like a distraction or like something else they didn't go with the stories to me because the things in the drawings were not described in the stories so i just didn't really connect to the drawings either they it almost felt like they were just part of a different book, you know, like, that I happen to be flipping through at the same time. I mean, to get into more, like, what I think these stories are lacking is, I was surprised at how little suspense is in them. For children's stories, I mean, you're not probably going to have a whole lot of grisly details, which these actually have more of, maybe, than you would expect. But um, I was expecting these to be suspenseful stories, because a lot of these urban legends are based around things that we're really afraid of, or things that we can imagine being kind of dreadful, like an urban legend with, like, the caller is upstairs, which, is that one of the stories in these books? I can't even remember now. (laughs) I don't think so. Okay. It is? It is? is? Okay, yeah. Like, I can't even remember what's in these books versus, like, the stories that I've already heard, because the way that they're retold in these stories is kind of the most basic way. They're just told so matter-of-factly, and there's no build-up of suspense. Like, in so many of these stories, it's maybe a sentence or two, and then some thing kind of weird happens like a, a mysterious person shows up and and you're like well i wonder if they're dead because in every story it's like mm-hmm. a ghost shows up <laughs> and then the the punchline at the end of the story is like and that person was dead but the <laughs> and you're dead too but it's just so obvious like almost none of these stories held any kind of surprise in them they're written right. as if the end is surprising and yet it is never right. surprising yeah there's a lack of both surprise and suspense I think to successfully accomplish horror, you need one and or the other. <laughs> but you can't really do it with neither. And I totally agree with you that like there's no surprise in the punchline of it. It's so clearly like a ta-da, but like a magician saying the word ta-da as he points to a magic trick that he's already done and the trick is very straightforward and everyone knew it was going to happen. Well, literally, because there's a whole section of, I think, all of these books that literally just ends with the word, ah! Dead from fright! The head turned and stared at the boy. Slowly, it opened its mouth and... Ah! 
Like you're supposed to just scare the person next to you. Like you're supposed to read it out loud, which is interesting when you're a kid. Like it gives you a story to tell when you like have sleepovers at night. I like that in theory, but these stories aren't very good. Like they're not well written. They they start with like a weird premise, and then the whole point of it is that I'm just supposed to go over and be like, boo. Yeah. You know, like yeah. That, and there's like, so many of them that, especially because the way that these books are formatted, that there's a whole section of those that reading them over like one by one I was like another one where you just say boo at the end another one where you grab your friend's hand like reading it felt really monotonous and those stories in particular stuck out as like especially terrible because like the boo the punchline would have nothing to do with and would do nothing to explain anything that came before it it wasn't even really a twist it was just like and then ooga booga (laughs) like it's (laughs) yeah it would sometimes be at really random moments it felt kind of like the children's version of the Sopranos finale or something like it just cut to black like and you're like wait that's it like like is someone dead what happened I do think that the way that these stories are structured is is weird I mean reading them the way that I did which was all in one sitting and reading both books two and three all together is not the preferred way to do it um really it's best if you read one story and then throw the rest in the garbage <laughs> <laughs> or, no, like, set it aside for another time. It's just not entertaining to read, like, more than one or two of these. And you should at least try and read them in a different order. Like, reading this book start to finish is not the way to do it, which is counterintuitive to the way that people read books. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just, I also found that it was just lacking on sort of a thematic level, too, is that these books are based on folklore, which I think is a really cool idea, because these are stories that have aged, you know, throughout generations at this point. And so to retell these stories for kids is interesting, but it does feel like the author is missing out on what made them scary in the first place. Like, they do feel, like, literally, like, stories retold. Like, hey, someone told me the story. I'm going to tell you what I remember. I remember this weird detail and that. But, like, it's not... It's like a bad retelling of a joke. Like, it's not a storyteller telling a story. It's sort of like your uncle trying to remember what he heard from his friend. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so in particular, like, I wanted to highlight the bus stop. I know that when I read these growing up, I didn't look at, like, the appendix and the additional notes at the end of the book. But this time around, I kind of checked checked out the notes at the end for some of these where Alvin Schwartz gives attributions and explanations to where he got these stories from. And the bus stop story is a trope that's been repeated throughout horror movie history. Usually the way that it's interpolated in a more modern context is like a hitchhiker gets picked up by an 18-wheeler truck or like someone who's on the road. It's like a hitchhiker getting picked up and it turns out that the person that picks them up has been dead for 20 years and like everyone knows it. And in this version, it's a bus driver is picking up a young girl at the bus stop like over and over and they connect and they develop a relationship and she misses their kind of appointed time that they would always get together and the bus driver learns that this girl has been dead for however many years. But Chris, like you were saying, like it seems like this is a person who's trying to tell you about these stories that he heard about and like rushing to explain what he heard rather than trying to actually tell the story. And I do think the fact that they're so compacted and really like, barely a page, double-spaced in most cases, 
um, if you were to actually like put this book into Microsoft Word, <laughs> I think it underserves both his attempt to like interpret the story in a modern context, and I think it also kind of underserves the folk tales that he is trying to share. Because like the bus stop one in particular, when I read the appendix, I learned that that's actually over two thousand years old and was a story from the Roman Empire. <laughs> I didn't even know they had buses back then. <laughs> right? It was like a Flintstone situation. And that's really interesting. It would have been great if it was well written. <laughs> right. There are easily imaginable ways you could kind of interpret that for a modern audience in a way that would be really interesting and and plays with that idea of like encounters that you have with people and you don't know who they are and then you go about the rest of your life not necessarily knowing like there are so many ways to make that scary and so many ways to make that captivating and this book does not do any of them yeah i found the american folklore angle interesting in these books i knew that that was what a lot of these were based on because i did know that the hook story was in here like that's a very famous story both in the story and outside of it and just in general scary stories and also in a Sarah Michelle Gellar movie. But like the fact that they weren't updated for modern times threw me a bit for a loop. Like I don't know that there's really a time and a place that these books take place, but a lot of them seem to be taking place like a very long time ago. Like they feel very like American farmy, like they they feel very they rural. Feel very, the they names, do feel rural. The names of rural. people, <laughs> rural, rural, I was so proud of the the fact that I said rural right, and then you said it <laughs> and completely blew it away. Anyway, go on. <laughs> That was a thing that stuck out big time for me this time. Just noticing how white, how very Caucasian, and like 1950s, every single thing about this is. Like the the ones of cars and stuff. Yeah, like there was one that like mentioned like going into the city, like Philadelphia, I think, oddly specifically. (laughs) Uh, But they all just felt so remote and so distant that I think maybe that's one reason why they were either popular with kids or at loud for kids in a way is just because they felt so distant that it wasn't contemporary for kids you know like i mean it's interesting to compare and contrast these with the goosebumps books because i think in so many ways the goosebumps books are the opposite of this those were not scary either to us mostly like we found that they were much more silly than scary but they were stories and they always starred like kids who were very much like we were in the suburbs yeah they and they were very relatable and in some ways like had too much suspense you know in like it would always be like oh no like it actually it was just a cat and like <laughs> too much like build up and were sometimes drawn out stories like probably longer than they needed to be because they needed to fill up like a novel length even though it was a very short novel but like they were at least like stories and and they had like thematic things behind them like really classic horror tropes like be careful what you wish for and don't go in the basement like those are very like classic horror things that you can easily like translate into a horror movie or something like even if you wouldn't like turn every goosebumps book into a horror movie like it felt like it had that like beginning middle and end and it had this sense of dread in there even if it's like a seven-year-old's version of dread Right. And and then the key thing is like it characterized the characters. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, this and you doesn't even care, try to. It, like you care to an extent if that child were to be 
murdered. And and in these, like, a lot of times these people do end up dead, and you're like, well, oh well, like, I don't care. Like, who is that anyways? Like, they they oddly have first and last names as if, we, as if we're meant to care about them. Mm-hmm. But that's it. Like, that's the only characterization we get. And again, like, the names are the most overtly Aryan <laughs> names They're very people have ever... Like, Lisa... <laughs> Hansel. Talking about names, I want to talk about the the story of Harold. Harold. This was one of the few ones that made me feel like creeped out from the story alone. It's about two, I guess they're farm hands. It's it's one of the more memorable ones, I think. Um this is the picture like r- viewers at home, <laughs> you can't see the picture, but it's of a scarecrow that has a belly button. So it's actually quite <laughs> disturbing and you may not even realize like why is this so disturbing it's scarecrow was born by cesarean because it just looks like a corpse hanging from like a stick basically it's two farmhands and they're bored and they hate another guy like harold so they make a scarecrow and treat him like harold and say mean things to him and you know take it out on him but then harold the scarecrow starts to move and you know they're scared of him and then this was basically this is the basically last paragraph When Alfred came to a rise in the path, he looked back for Thomas. He did not see him anywhere, but he did see Harold. The doll was on the roof of the hut again. As Alfred watched, Harold kneeled and stretched out a bloody skin to dry in the sun. That was a visual that definitely, like, stuck with me. I was like, oh, we got some Silence of the Lambs shit in here. <laughs> like, I felt like that was one of the gorier ones that felt like an R-rated movie visual for, for a little kid to imagine. Whereas other ones are like, her head fell off. Like, really kind of cartoony punchlines. Like, that one actually felt really disturbing. The one that this time kind of somewhat worked for me was the story Something Was Wrong, where a guy is a ghost, like, turns out to be that he was a ghost in his dad. But the whole story is just him discovering one day that, like, everyone is afraid and terrified of him and and is just horrified to see him and everyone flees his presence. And kind of, there was something existentially interesting about it. But again, it's such a short story. I think that's one of the shortest ones in the whole book. Like, it was just a couple paragraphs. So, there's not enough time to get to really, like, live in that experience. Um, and that should be something that is so just kind of basically terrifying. And, you know, absolutely, either as a kid or as an adult, like, that's the kind of story that conceptually really scares me. It's just like waking up one day and everyone that you encounter is, like, terrified by you and runs away from you. Like, there's something that should be so scary about that, but... There was one story that I think stood out to me. I at least had a moment of like, oh, like, that's gross. It's Sam's new pet. And it's one where a a child named Sam, his parents go to Mexico and bring him back a hairless chihuahua. (laughs) Oh, right. And then at the end, you realize that it's a sewer rat with rabies. (laughs) We've all been there. Yeah. And (laughs) that drawing is disturbing, too. Maybe that's why... uh, (laughs) <laughs> it's a very bubbly looking creature. It doesn't look like a Pomeranian or whatever. What did you say? <laughs> Hairless chihuahua. Yeah. <laughs> Just saying it doesn't look like a dog. 
<laughs> and that was one of the few that at least went in an interesting direction for me because that wasn't what I was thinking. Like, there are so many where it's just, like, a pale person is <laughs> has cold skin and is not responding to you. And surprise, they're dead. These books do have a lot of body horror and grotesque things, which I think maybe is why kids like them because they're it's very tactile, yeah. um, which is also something I've never liked and might be a reason why I didn't read these books because I I don't like gore, I don't like body horror. Okay, speaking of body horror, one of the again this is more about the illustration. There's a I forgot the rest of the story, but a woman is turned into a horse and she gets horseshoes, you know, when she's a horse, like nailed on her and then she turns back into a human, but she has horseshoes nailed onto her feet. And that visual always stuck with me like, oh my God, that's so creepy and, and gross. But also the the illustration is of like a horse with like high heels. Like it's just such a creepy looking horse. <laughs> like again, like the illustration is better than the story, but at least the end the this not the writing of the story but the visuals it conjures in my brain like helped upgrade it <laughs> to like a better level than like than it really is as a written story yeah i mean maybe like think about that story like i i do remember that story and i really wish that the story was written in a way that conjured that image for you because i feel like you have to do so much of the work yourself to like think about that image because it's described so briefly and treated as such a punchline that like you can stop and like imagine that if you want to but the story doesn't actually do that for you. So it's like, if I want to think about what that actually looks like, I have to actually stop reading the story and, like, think about it, rather than, like, the story actually is kind of doing some of that work for me and describing it in a tactile way. So partly maybe because we were reading these, like, on our own as adults, like, knowing we had to read all of these books and, and like, getting through it, like, we maybe weren't taking a lot of the time that maybe one should take to imagine these things. But I do just wish that the storytelling was more vivid so that those images would stick with me more so than they did. Like, the fact that these are folklore makes me feel like the author should have taken a little extra time to then retell them because it's not like they were original stories so it's like either you're going to take old stories and then tell them in a fun new way or you're going to create something new Mm -hmm. but like what he did was just take old stories and then tell them in a not very interesting way and just and like cliff notes them yeah and so i just (laughs) like like, Cliff why take the all these old stories and not kind of give them your own spin? Like, it it, they, it does just feel like a very, like, like, I'm reporting on what these stories are. Like, here you go. You can now continue on with your day. <laughs> I just want to point out that the author uses the term queer happenings <laughs> throughout <he>? all three <laughs> books. <laughs> and nothing queer happened. No. No, nothing at all. There, it just wasn't described very <laughs> specifically. Fair enough. Yeah, I was I was very disappointed in these books. I, I really, compared to Goosebumps, which we, I think, all decided were not super well written, I was hoping that these would be, that these would be... I thought that these and Goosebumps would kind of offset each other in the strengths and weaknesses. 
but these didn't really have a lot of strengths. Like, I, they definitely had some ghastly images, like some very grotesque stuff, but in a way that wasn't appealing. It was like, oh, that's gross. Like, why are you telling me that? Like, it, it kind of felt like a coworker sharing, like, I don't know, some, some like, gross... I'm like, why are you telling me that? Like, don't tell me that. I don't want to know. <laughs> like, it felt like either stories that weren't developed enough or just kind of cheap scares. Anyone could yell boo at the end of Sense and Sensibility. <laughs> doesn't make it a horror story like that's kind of what it felt like this was that's what jane austen needed more of is jump scares Uh, i believe that's called pride and prejudice and zombies (laughs) pride and prejudice and boo i don't know that these were scary stories they were barely even stories they were like off-putting paragraphs to tell in the dark I agree with that. I would totally hang Stephen Gamble's art on my wall, but I don't really need to read these ever again. I would stop my daughter from reading them because they're kind of bad stories, not because I think she's going to have nightmares. Maybe that's why it's most challenged. Maybe the parents are all just like, these aren't very good stories. (laughs) Overall, uh, just give me the Gamble. Give me the Gamble or nothing. Um, The illustrations, I think, are by far the most interesting thing about this whole series then and now conceptually i think it's so cool to take folk stories that have been passed down generation to generation in some cases thousands of years (laughs) like hundreds of generations been passed down but i think the obligation is to tell those stories in a compelling way i think it's to characterize the characters in those stories and that seems like a basic point but that was kind of lost on the creators behind this. So I wouldn't really necessarily recommend scary stories or telling them in the dark. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the good thing about these stories is that you can find versions of them pretty much anywhere else there is horror. So watch I Know What You Did Last Summer. Watch. Oh my god, this is not the I Know What You Did Last Summer podcast. Yes, it is. <laughs> it is now. We we now wholeheartedly recommend I Know oh, What You Did Last this Summer. Is I do not recommend that. This movie. is a Jennifer Love Hewitt podcast from now on. <laughs> Sarah Michelle Geller. And that's all the hooks we have time for on the When We Were Young podcast. On our next episode, I want you to hit me as hard as you can, because we are once again going back to 1999 to revisit the literal smash hit Fight Club, a David Fincher joint starring Ed Norton, Helena Bonham Carter, Meatloaf, and Brad Pitt. The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. If you've enjoyed this, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review of five stars or more. And you can follow us on all the major social medias, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I'm Seth Pearson. I'm Becky. Ah! Ah! (laughs) And I was a ghost all along. But when she turned and looked around, she saw a corpse upon the ground. From its nose down to its chin, the worms crawled out and the worms crawled in. The woman to the preacher said, Shall I look like that when I am dead? The preacher to the woman said, You'll look like that when you are dead. Yeah!